Hi, friends, and thanks for joining us today for the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This week, we welcomed back Todd Selecta, who spoke out of a passage in Luke 11. Todd's encouragement to all of us is to take a careful look at how we handle our hospitality to those around us. How has our American culture affected our ability to truly understand God's expectations for his people when it comes to loving and caring for our neighbor? Remember, you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., or you can always find us at hillcrestdecalb.com. Grace and peace. Many of you know me from last week. Let's call it like it is. I'm surprised you're here too. So, <laughs> you know, when you were doing the kids' sermon, did you hear what uh, one of your grandkids said? Um, it was basically, uh, can you stop talking? Yeah. yeah. That's the first words out of Jen's mouth in my class. <laughs> Would you just stop talking? Um, you, you talked about kindness. Um, those of you that don't know me, I've, my, my background's in rabbinical thought in Old Testament. Um, and I was mentored by a rabbi for a number of years um, when I was in Calgary. And it's funny, when you talk about the thing about kindness, um, we were talking, and uh, I remember his name is Rabbi Sachs. And I said to him, like, so you know, when, when your, your son or when your daughter are looking for a spouse, what do you look for? And he, I said, you, you know, I said, probably like a Jewish faith, right? And he goes, uh, that'd be nice. I thought, that's kind of odd. I said, so... Like maybe a good job, like a lawyer, a doctor. He goes, "Man, it'd be nice too." So, do you want to be a rabbi like you? He goes, "I don't want anyone to be a rabbi like me." <laughs> I said, "So, what do you look for?" He goes, "Fundamentally kind." If anybody comes to my son or daughter as a future spouse and they are fundamentally kind, I don't care about the rest because God is there. I thought. I passed it on to my kids, my wife and I, because they were always like, oh, so you want them to be a Christian, right? And I kind of got all Jewish on them. Eh, it'd be nice. <laughs> but kindness. And they both, uh, praise God, married kindness in their lives. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher more than a preacher. I know people don't make some distinctions. I don't know what that is. But my job is to take passages that are familiar to you, lift them up, Turn them ever so slightly so you see them from a different angle, and then maybe it hits you in a different way, the scripture passages that might be familiar to you. You need to remember that the Bible assumes that we know a lot more than we do. For example, 2,000 years from now, if you said to someone, wow, 9-11 was a day, that'll mean nothing to them. It does to you right now if I say, boy... Where were you, 9-11? All things conjure up emotions, um, cultural, global dialogue that went on. A change fundamentally in our lives. 2,000 years from now, when we talk about social distance, they're not going to know what that means. Without some, so the Bible assumes that 2,000 years later, you understand a lot more than you do. It's assuming you understand a number of things. It, that, that it assumes that you understand customs and traditions and theology and cultural dialogue and thought that was going on in the biblical era that it assumes the reader knows. Is, is our slides up? There we go. So today, hang tight, I'm going to teach you about Martha Stewart. 
the Bible assumes that we know the customs, the traditions, the theology, the cultural thought, the dialogue of the biblical era. And, and, and it, we'd, it, it'd be amazing if we knew all the story, how much more rich the story would be. In fact, if you don't know the whole story, it's funny what could happen. Like, watch this. Look what could happen if we don't know the whole story. Again, if you don't know the whole story, don't judge too quickly. Oh, how about this one? Oh, it jumped ahead here. Can we go back? Here. A lot of bad things can happen if you don't know the whole story, all right? And we go into the scriptures without knowing the whole story, and we draw some bad conclusions from it. This is my, one of my favorite movies of all time. You guys know what movie this is? My Big Fat Greek Wedding. One of my favorite movies of all time. It captures the truth of you don't just marry a person, you marry their family. It captures it to the nth degree. Um, uh, you, you know, the scene that I... This is one of my favorite scenes. Because Tula, who's the, the focus, um, she is, is dating a, an Anglo gentleman who's not Greek, okay? And he's over at her house. And the aunts and uncles and cousins hear that he's there and all find a convenient reason to show up at the house at that time. And so Tula opens the door and there's these folks. And they all, they're asking, and there's, they're making small talk like, oh, we're just here to check how you're doing, you know? Then, and then one of them finally says, is he here? And she goes, yes, Ian. And they all go running up to him, and this is, this is Ian's view. And they're all asking him, like, oh, this is Ian. Oh, you need to be fattened up. And they're, they're, they're telling him all kinds of stories back and forth. And it became very simple, it, this simple truth of if she accepts him, then he is part of the family now, too. That simple. If Tula says yes, we say yes. You know, I, I come from a Czech family, um, my, my brother married the, the girl across the street, Czech married Czech, and we all rejoiced, you know. And my sister married the boy down the block, Czech married Czech, and we all rejoiced. I married a Swedish Norwegian. <laughs> yeah. My grandfather and grandmother boycotted our wedding, did not come, because I didn't marry Czech. In fact... Uh, my grandfather died, not because of that, but um, <laughs> though if you t- talk to whoever, it could be. But, but after he died, about two years later, my grandma said, you need to come to the house and bring your wife. I thought, she's going to kill him, kill her. And so we went to the matriarch's house, and we hung out with her for a couple of days. And uh, we got in the car, we're about to leave, and she goes, come here. And I walked up to her, and I thought, she's going to kill me <laughs> for not being Czech. She's not too bad. <laughs> she died two months later. <laughs> it's like she had to like, finally say okay after boycotting the wedding. Uh, that was like four years after we were married. Um, so 
But, but I tell you what, if you were to visit my mom and dad, and they live in the Chicago area, if you were to go to their house, and I am not making this up, you ring the doorbell, they open the door and you say, hey, your son preached at our church one Sunday, and I, I, it was kind of fun. And you know what they would do? Come on in. They would take you in, and they would sit you down, and they would, they would feed you. They would, they would give you drink. They would ask you about me. They would start bringing you into the family drama. They would ask you to take sides about Uncle Al and make sure you say he did it. Um, <laughs> Czech hospitality includes laughter, intrusive questions, food, and being pulled into the family fights. But there's one thing you cannot do, even as a guest at the Czech home. My sister was put on this earth for me to make fun of, not you. <laughs> and if you make fun of her, we circle the wagons pretty quick. We circle the wagons pretty quick. I had uh, the privilege of leading uh, many educational pilgrimages, groups of people to Israel over the years. And we would purposely spend at least one or two nights um, in the desert with a Bedouin community, and we'd stay with them in their, in their tents out in the desert and learn about Bedouin customs um, that, that threw light on a number of biblical texts or, or, um, or particularly Old Testament texts. Um, it was through these experiences that I learned about uh, the Bedouin understanding of hospitality and what that means. That Bedouin understanding of hospitality. You know, like for Bedouins... Uh, they were often on the move. Why were they on the move, do you think? By the way, I said I'm a teacher. There is interaction, and, if, and I do actually want interaction. And if you have a question, I do really want you to raise your hand. So uh, they're usually on the move. Why do you think they're always on the move? Resources. Resources, right? Because they have, they have sheep, goats, and, and it's a desert. And there's certain places where there's water, and where there's water, there's also grazing land. And so they were constantly on the move to wherever the next sort of source was. So it allowed their goats to find place to, to graze and to get water. And so they tended to be very isolated people. They tended to be very isolated from, quote, civilization. And therefore, it, they became what we would probably call a, know, a hardy breed, right? Very self-reliant kind of people. And it, was, it was like a survival ethos that, that persisted within Bedouins. In fact, survival, you needed the whole family to survive. So the minute you were able as a child to start doing chores or things that would help the family survive, you started doing it. And you, that was part of the ethos of survival. And, and the only thing I could think of in the American tradition that comes close would be um, uh, the, the homesteaders of the 1800s. That's the only thing I think that could come close in our own experience. Um, you relied on yourselves, you relied on your families, you relied on distant neighbors that were homesteading in the same area to survive. And anyone who was a Bedouin or anyone who was a homesteader recognized that you needed to help each other to survive. And I would even say it moved beyond need. It was expected that you would help, no matter what, because your survival most likely depended upon it. Anyone who's a Bedouin recognized it, that it was more than just an understanding. There was an obligation to assist one another when you're in survival mode, much like the homesteaders of the 1800. And so rooted in this um, survival ethos, if you will, this survival mentality, there arose within a Bedouin culture a form of hospitality that I don't think we can even begin to fathom today, but the Bible assumes that you understand it. Do you see where I'm going with this? 
Giving hospitality to someone became perhaps the, the, the highest form of virtue that one could embody. Being hospitable, showing hospitality to someone was um, the ultimate statement of a person's integrity. And yes, even of their faith and their faith maturity. Being hospitable, showing hospitality was linked to being righteous, to being close to God, to being encountering of the divine, if you were hospitable or showed hospitality. In fact, um, that's what's in the scripture that's very, that you know very well. Hebrews assumes you understand this. Have you seen this passage? Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without even realizing. Those that have done so encountered divinity, and they might not have even realized it. The link between hospitality and countering the divine was woven into the biblical culture. Hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought. They that were hospitable to the stranger were held in high, high esteem as a person of faith, as a person of integrity, as a person that was wise, a person, in short, to be respected and probably to be obeyed. Showing hospitality to the stranger was linked to closeness to God, plain and simple. Now, it's really interesting. So when a stranger comes to a Bedouin tent, so as the teacher um, with my students, I was seen as the patriarch of the family that I was bringing, and we would wander into this Bedouin community. And there was a ceremony that happened whenever a stranger entered into an encampment. Now, the way the camps were set up was the patriarch was in the center, and then the, fa- the closest families, their tents were in a circle, then the second cousins were in a circle, and we really didn't care about the third and fourth cousins, so they were far out, they were expendable. You know what I mean? Those guys, they, they absorbed the attack first. <laughs> yeah, some of you took a while to get there because you're nice. And those of us that are strategic going, well, Uncle Bell, he's... What, fifth cousin? Put him out there. So, but the patriarch was in the center, so usually a, a stranger that was bringing his clan would encounter an outside tent, right? And they would stop and say, who are you? Why are you coming here? What do you need? And so what would happen is um, they would, uh, the, 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 a stranger coming out of camp like that was usually en route from one civilization, one city to another. And so they usually had news of the, of the outside world, and so they would want to gather and say, tell us your story, stranger, and tell us what's happening out in the world. Do you see where I'm going with this one? And the way they would do that, and this is so covenant, is they would, um, they would gather people for coffee. No, I'm not making this up. And, and, and you guys are going, no, no, you're, I'm, I'm not making this up. Actually, see, see in the, there's a coffee grinder right there. See that, what looks like a butter churn? Actually, let's get closer. See it? That's a coffee grinder. So they, they would take beans and they'd stick it in there, and then they would start banging it. But each patriarch's camp in that circle had a, their own rhythm that would make their own rhythm. So they, they had their own sound. So when you heard a certain rhythm, you knew coffee was on in that tent. Do you see where I'm going with this? And so, you know, you'd be, you'd be hanging out and also you hear this chunk, chunk, you know what I mean? Or, yeah, I tell you what, it sounds something like this.
And so people would go, Uncle Bill's got coffee on. Now, the patriarch had a certain rhythm, and when that one was played, you came, plain and simple. And so as we would come into this Bedouin camp, they would grind coffee, and they would do this rhythm, and then others would come to hear the strangers that came to town. All right? Then everyone would drink coffee, and the visitor uh, from the clan that was going through would, would give an update. Here's where we're coming from. Here's what we're going for. Here's what we heard in this city, and we're bringing you up to speed on things. And then usually the, 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 the patriarch of the encampment would say, do you need refuge? Meaning, are you going to stay with us tonight? Almost always the answer was yes. And so given the vulnerable nature of existence in the, den, in the desert, at some point the patriarch would say, do you need refuge? And they'd say, yes, we'd like to stay the night. And they would take out a sword, a scimitar. And this part of the ceremony. The sword was symbolic of both power and protection. The patriarch would then hold the sword up for all his family to see, and then he would take the sword and hand it to the patriarch of the visiting clan. In this case, he would hand it to me, indicating that now for the duration of our stay, this meant that in every sense of the word, we were now part of his clan. For the duration of our stay, and there was a minimum and a maximum, believe it or not, because again, you don't want someone squatting. So but, but for the duration of their stay, you were considered part of the family in every sense of the word, entitled to the rights, privileges, and protection thereof. In fact, these guests of the clan would assume a status of honor that even transcended the biological family. Did you hear what I just said? That while you're staying with us, you are actually more important than my own family while we extend this hospitality to you. In fact, ready for this? It was considered the ultimate shame to extend hospitality to someone, but it was even more shameful if they came to harm under your care. Now, why is that important? And let me rephrase it. One would rather die or sacrifice their own family members than let harm come to a guest to whom they've extended protection. You know where this comes into play? How many of you have ever read Genesis 19, 1 through 8, Sodom and Gomorrah, when the two angels show up, and then the men surround the house and say, hey, bring them out. We want to have sex with them. This is why the children are dismissed, right? And what does he do? Do you remember what he does? He, he offers his two virgin daughters because he had extended protection to them, and it was shameful to let harm come to them. And so he offered up his daughters. Basically saying, I, don't do this to me. They are here under my protection. Please, don't do this to me. The shame. It happens again in Judges. Similar kind of thing, Judges 19. Apparently chapter 19 is a cursed verse, but anyway. But chapter 19, Judges, same thing. Similar situation. They surround the house saying, bring them out. And he says, here's my virgin daughter. No, don't do this to me. We've extended them our hospitality. They're our clan. Please don't do this. Take take my, my son or daughter instead. Now, now I've got to tell you, let's face it, when we talk about hospitality, and we talk about Martha Stewart, she doesn't have that in mind. She's all about the napkin should be this way, right? Martha Stewart never had this in mind about hospitality involving that kind of sacrifice because Martha Stewart wasn't a Bedouin and neither are we. Once that ritual was completed, the sword. Then uh, there was a feast. And the guest patriarch, me, 
was treated like a king. In fact, here's a picture of one of my students loving the fact that she has to play the role <laughs> of being the patriarch, and I'm the patriarch. Um, so, and, and then the music started, and lots of food and dancing. Uh, the top 40 hits sounded something like this. Got a good beat, you can dance to it. I give it a 10. So, now with all of this understanding, let, let's stop here. Let's a pause before we go to the passage now, because you now have the understanding of the cultural context, right? Any questions, thoughts, comments? Where are we at? Y'all with me so far? You know what? We have footage that will never see the light of day. <laughs> For everyone's sake, because I want you to sleep tonight. So laying in bed with your eyes wide open, going, I shouldn't have seen that. <laughs> we did dance with them, though, and it is hilarious. Um, but uh, so, so with that, um, with this new understanding of the sacred duty that it is to provide hospitality to a guest, keep that in mind now as we head into the passage, right? So this is the passage we're looking at today. And now you have all the cultural context, customs, and ideas going on. Let's take a look at this passage. Then... Teaching them how to, about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread, and you say to him, hey, a friend of mine just arrived for a visit, and I've got nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed, I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Your fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you, sinful, sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How many of you know this passage and have heard this passage before? Show of hands. It's probably for some people on a pillow somewhere or on, a, on an embroidered thing on their wall. Now, here's how I always heard this interpreted. I, I, I've heard this preached probably in my career 40 times. I've always heard it preached with this, this point. We need to be persistent in our prayers. Does that sound about right? We need to be persistent in our prayers. It's one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible, followed by a short and very strange parable, right? And it's usually the, the, the sermon uh, conclusion is, so don't give up. Don't have little faith. Keep on keeping on. Pray. Keep praying. It resonates with our North American blue-collar, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality, right? And we're like, that's right. That's right. Pull yourself up, brother. Just keep going. That's all you got to do. God helps those who help themselves, right? That's in, that's in Scripture, you know. It's often quoted. It's not in Scripture. In fact, I think it's the other way. We can't help ourselves. That's why. But, hey, I digress. It's, it, think about these cultural pearls of wisdom that are woven into our culture. 
Persistence pays. Have you ever heard that phrase? Don't take no for an answer. Have you heard that phrase? Uh, here's the participatory one. Um, if at first you don't succeed, there it is. The squeaky wheel gets. There it is. You know this. You, this is woven. You, you are default wired to think this way. Do you see it? Of course we interpret it that way. The problem is I don't believe that's what this passage is about at all. At all. Or at the very least, persistence in prayer is not the primary point of this passage. Keep these ideas from Bedouin hospitality in mind as we read the passage again. The expectation that you will provide for a guest. The shame that comes from failing to do so. And the expectation that neighbors are obligated to help one another, family members even more so. Keep that in mind, and let's read the passage again. Then teaching them more about prayer. He used the story. Suppose he went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow the three loaves of bread. And you say to him, I have a friend of mine that just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he, the guy you went for help, calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Traditionally, we focus on that late-night forager was in need, and he turned to his brother for help, like we turn to God. That's typically how we, we, we interpret this, right? I would suggest to you that the shock value is not there, though. For the culture, where do you think the shock value is? Anyone? The person that says, don't bother me. That's the shock factor. Don't bother me. We're already in bed. The focus of this passage hinges on verse 8. We're in the New Living Translation, and in the NIV, it translates as shameless persistence. Now, keeping the Bedouin traditions and expectations of hospitality in mind, would it interest you to know that there are a number of parcels of Scripture where the English translation interprets it this way, in order to protect his reputation? There are shards of translations that say the better translation is this. But again, most translating boards have opted for because of your shameless persistence. I would argue, you know why they did that? It's a North American culture. It fits better with us. It doesn't fit the biblical culture, though. In fact, the Jewish people on the New Living Translation, Translating Committee said it should be this. Because guess what? The point I wish to make is that someone's reputation is at stake here, but there are only two choices. It's the one who wasn't ready because he didn't have any food, or it's the one who doesn't respond when help is requested, even if it is late. But as we read on in verse 9 and 10, I think the passage demonstrates where that should be. And so I tell you, keep on asking. Because if we read it this way, backwards, in order to, come on, in order to protect his reputation, if that's the interpretation, then read this. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find it. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. What, what is he saying will happen? If you keep knocking on that door, what's going to happen? 
He'll get up and open it. Shame him. If the doors keep banging, people are going to start turning on the lights going, who's making all this racket? And they're going to figure out that. The guy who was supposed to help didn't. So keep knocking. He'll do it. Now, here's the funny thing. Too often we read this as, see, just press it and be persistent and God will answer. Here's what I say. If we keep that interpretation, what we're saying is, keep at it, be persistent, and God will finally cave in to you. God will finally cave in to you just to shut you up. Now, but think about that for a moment. Does that sound like the sort of relationship you want with God? Does that sound like the kind of relationship God wants with you, the kind where a, where a petulant child and stubborn child finally wears down the haggard, worn-out parent and they cave in and give the child's demands? Is that the sort of image you have of God? If so, I would beg you to change it. Think about that for a moment. In this chapter, what is it that the disciples have asked for in the beginning of the chapter? Chapter 11, verse 1. What is it they asked about? Does anybody remember? Teach us how to pray. That's what the first thing is they said is in uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying and he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Hey, Lord, teach us how to pray. This chapter starts with the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so Jesus teaches them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. That's where we get this from, right? So verses 2 through 4 is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That, so he teaches them that. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. The disciples want to know about prayer, so he continues, and that brings us to our passage today. Then teaching them more about prayer, he goes into this story about the, the, the late-night visitor. And then, in the following verses, he gives two examples of what I would say prayer is not supposed to be like. Not supposed to be like. The first example is a story that contradicts all Bedouin tradition and expectations when it comes to hospitality. That's the first one, when he says, the guy says, I won't get up, I'm too tired, we're already asleep. That would be shocking to that culture. They would all go, what the heck is his problem? How could he do that to the family? How could he do that to? That's where the shock value would be. And then Jesus goes on, in the second story, contains two very curious verses. And you can hear the incredulous tone in Jesus saying, come on, disciples, God's not like that. You fathers, if your children ask for fish, do you, ask, do you give them a snake instead? Do you hear the, do you hear the incredulous in his voice? And, and, and if, uh, if they ask for an egg, do you go, here's a scorpion instead? Of course not. Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do you think the Heavenly Father is responsive to you. That's what it's saying. You can hear that incredulous tone. Come on, disciples. God's not like that brother or neighbor who, wasn't even, who wouldn't even be bothered to get out of bed. He'll answer you. You don't need to shame him into action. God will act. You can almost hear Jesus getting elevated, going, be serious, people. Do you think a father would say, have a snake instead or a scorpion when they ask for good gifts? Do you really think God the Father is like that? Seriously? That's what the tone is in this passage. And I love Jesus' sarcasm. 
I kind of resonate with it. It's a spiritual gift. <laughs> if you people who know nothing like God know how to appropriately respond to a child, how much would God know how to appropriately respond to you? Do you see the difference in how we've traditionally interpreted this passage and how most likely it should be interpreted? I'll wrap up this way. Before I do, questions, comments, thoughts? I'm serious about that. Like, I, we, I like interaction. Good. Either you totally get it or you're like, dude, there's food. <laughs> it is as true for us, the believers today, as it was for the faithful Bedouin 5,000 years ago. Do you get what's going on here, the parallel? You are part of God's family. Like, you were wandering, and you came to his encampment, and he said, hey, hey, let's get some coffee on. Let's, let's hear your story. In fact, let me call the whole family together. And I'm going to summon them from all over, and we want to meet you, and we want to hear your story. And he extended, he goes, do you, need to, do you need refuge? You do? I will protect you. In fact, you are now part of my family. And, and no harm will come to you. I promise you that. In fact, if, if I, I would even sacrifice, wait for it, my own son if I have to. Do you see it? Do you see it? I would sacrifice my own son if it came to save you, and I, and I, and I would do that. You're part of my family now. I offer the sword of protection. Tell us your story. Let's celebrate together. Just that you're here. And he's already done that. Just, he's already done that for each one of us. Each one of you. See, see, God is not asking you to prepare a 10-course banquet complete with music and dancing for someone in your life. He's, he's not asking you to protect someone at the cost of your life or that of your sons and daughters. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what God is asking you. God is asking you to... Um, how about invite someone over for dessert and coffee? And not just the usual group, that person you wave to across the street that you kind of know, but your garage doors go up and they go down and you don't see them again? How about that one? How about you actually invite them over for coffee and dessert into your, into your life? I think God is asking you to throw an extra burger or two on the grill and invite someone over who you only sort of know for dinner. I think God is asking you to do that. I think God is asking you to write that note, send that email or text, make that call to thank someone or just let them know that you're thinking about them and that 30 seconds on a text isn't too much. I, I do think God is telling you to have the heart of a disciple that says, teach me, I might be wrong and I want to learn. I do think he's calling you to that. I, I, I do think God is calling you to pursue what is right versus pursuing personal rights. Oh, now I'm meddling, right? Now I'm meddling. I do think God is calling you to work for peace, healing, justice, and unity beyond thoughts and prayers. Oh, no, now I'm really getting close. I do think God is calling you to be ready to sacrifice for that traveler that comes across your life's journey and interrupts your life. 
I do think he's calling you to do that. Would you agree that the Bedouin's idea of hospitality is a wee bit better than Martha Stewart's? Would you agree with me that hospitality of God is even greater and more loving and sacrificial than our definition of hospitality? Would you agree to that? Yeah. Would you agree that at various times you are both the receiver of God's hospitality and the extender of God's hospitality to the community of DeKalb? You're about to do it. I would suggest, you're, if, not, if you don't believe so, you're on a pretty good trajectory at the moment. Because I, I don't think the goal of that get-together is to dupe someone into coming into the sanctuary. I think the goal of that gathering is saying, hey, tell us your story. Our, our paths intersect. Hey, let me introduce you to our family. Where's yours? That, that's actually very biblical in Bedouin. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And Jesus responded, saying, to do it this way. How, how about we end this way? Um, do we have the Lord's Prayer on, on the slides? How about we stand and let's pray? When the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray, before he got to the whole passage we just unpacked, he said, all right, I'll teach you to pray. It should go something like this, together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It's been a privilege to be with you for two weeks. Um, Jen is a wonderful, wonderful pastor. You scored big. I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. I don't give gratuitous compliments, but you scored big. Um, and, I, I, and again, thank you for, uh, I should thank her for trusting me for two weeks with you. Um, but uh, I could see why she loves you so much. I really can.